Welcome to the Trust Show, uh, Season 9, Episode 6. Uh, I talked in the past, I talked about the fact that uh, I believe that HR is ideally uh, positioned to build trust in the organization. So, uh, uh, And uh, this time I'm going to do something that's a little different. Obviously, if we want to, if HR is going to have to build trust, the first thing that has to happen is employees need to trust the HR department, the HR professionals, the CHRO. What I'm going to do different this time is uh, I'm going to have a guest. Now, this is not like a typical interview. I'm going, I'm not going to interview her. Uh, it's going to be a conversation with an expert who knows and who cares. And when I say who cares, I mean she cares. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of the Book of Trust and facilitator of the Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? Okay, so uh, let me introduce uh, Fiona Passantino. And Fiona, uh, you currently live in The Hague, right? In the Netherlands. Yes, in the Netherlands. Yes. But that's not where you came from originally. No, I'm from uh, Washington, D.C., long time ago. So yes. uh, thank you, by the way, thank you, Yoram, for having me on the show. And thank you for your trust, um, because it's very difficult to uh, uh, to break your regular format, which you've uh, developed so beautifully, and, uh, and uh, try something new. So uh, thank you for that. Oh, no, thank you for being here. So, uh, so you left Washington, D.C., uh, obviously, uh, you decided not to become a politician. Uh, or a lawyer. <laughs> but, yes, I got into too much trouble to be a politician. <laughs> yeah. So that path closed to me very early on in my life. <laughs> so tell us, you have experience in HR. That, that's why you're here today. You have experience. We met, by the way, uh, in one of HR.com's webinars where Fiona was the moderator. She had delivered content. I really enjoyed listening to her. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm very critical in listening to speakers, uh, but she was really fun to listen. It was very, very clear. And I thought it uh, would make sense. We became friends, right? I think we're friends. Uh, sure. Now we've communicated back and forth quite a bit. Uh, but tell us a little bit about your experience with HR. Sure. Uh, I've been in large corporations, so very complex international multinationals. So companies like Philips, uh, Danone, which is Danon, the guys who make the yogurt, um, and uh, National Nederland, which is a huge insurance company, um, and then Group, Achmea, which is a giant um, insurance company, and Postenel, which is the National Postal Service of the Netherlands. So I really enjoy those large, complex organizations because they have a lot of built-in cultural complexities. Okay. and uh, But now you're no longer in HR. So was there anything that made you leave HR as, as being a specialized HR professional? Yeah, I started in basically in, in communication. So 
in internal communication, it used to be the marketing department's uh, field, but then it kind of got uh, shifted over to HR because it, the line is quite blurred between uh, internal comms and uh, and HR. It's, it's now largely seen as an HR function. And from there, I got involved with culture and engagement. And that's actually my favorite, that kind of trifecta of culture, engagement, and communications because they're, uh, they're inseparable. So I've been in internal communications for the last 10 years and specifically culture and engagement for the last four. And I am now on my own. So I help companies overcome challenges. I help leaders uh, overcome challenges with their own engagement, with their teams, taking their teams to become more high performing, uh, bringing some engagement, some joy back in the workplace, and for leaders to raise their visibility with content creation and, uh, and other leadership hacks. Okay. Uh, one last thing before we dive into that. Uh, I know a lot of professionals who wrote books, but uh, you're the only person I know who wrote comics books for executives. Say something about that. <laughs> Yes. I've been crazy about comic books my whole life. I think I wrote my first one when I was eight years old. And uh, I've been uh, just a fanatic uh, consumer of comics from the age of, you know, 10 on. Uh, I used to love Tintin books and uh, Asterix and every form of manja, which is the Japanese uh, uh, way of doing. And um, and so I've been always using visuals a lot. I started as a visual artist and graphic designer, illustrator. And a lot of my work is a heavy use of visuals and illustration. And to me, comic books are that perfect marriage of text and illustration. And you can really use an economy of text when you pair it with images. And I, I say that for PowerPoint slides and for books, for, for anything you use, let your visuals do the work and uh, use a minimum of text. Because as you may know, Yorm, we don't read anymore. So that's why we listen to you. We, uh we, where we've lost our skill and, and our attention span. So comics are actually becoming more and more interesting. I chose the format for that reason, just to deliver the content in a very efficient and fun way. Um, but also the fun part is a strategic element. When we are laughing, when we are enjoying the process of consuming, the information enters. If we can make fun of what we're doing in the world in which we're operating, we, by definition, allow the information to come in and we remember it in a way uh, that straight up text or corporate speak does not allow us to do. And if I remember correctly, you illustrated your own books, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you're telling me. I, I have to ask a question and, and I know that I, I haven't asked you before. Are you left-handed by any chance? <laughs> no, no, indeed not. <laughs> no, right-handed. I thought left-handed people are more visual. I'm, I'm left-handed and that's why I like visuals. <laughs> then good theory. No, my mother is left-handed, but I'm, I'm, I'm a, a run-of-the-mill right-hander. Okay, so I'm <laughs> going to dive right into it. And I, I want to read a few parts that I highlighted from three articles. So the first one actually comes from Harvard Business Review. And here's, here's what it says. The, the way most human resource departments work just isn't working for employees. And I'm talking about employees now. Our latest studies of 993 employees reveals that when they have concerns, whether it's how they're being treated by their manager Uh, or uncivil behavior from a peer, they would rather reach out to almost anyone before turning to someone in HR. So that's that's one article. 
Uh, the second one uh, comes from uh, Crucial Learning. That, that's a uh, an assessment company, a survey company. Those, by the way, are from 2022. This is not uh, ages ago. So a new study that they have released finds that the majority of employees do not feel supported by their organization's human resource leaders and not comfortable speaking up about their concerns. Um in an April 2022 poll of a thousand people, just one in four survey respondents said that HR leader is widely trusted as one who cares about the needs of employees. Uh, so that fact, the one in four, uh, they believe that uh, the only one in four believe the HR uh, leader does a good job balancing their needs with those of the organization, which I think is going to be an important part of it. 39% of people don't believe that HR leader would speak candidly with anyone in the organization to ensure employees' uh, needs are, are heard. With this lack of trust, almost uh, half respondents, 47%, said they don't feel safe confiding in and getting assistance from their HR leader. Fiona, you told me a story about something that happened to you when you worked in an organization. Can you share that story? Yes, sure. I, I do want to point to that um, statistic. There's one more even. Only 9% of people, I think that's that's the very same study, believe that their HR leaders would actually advocate on their behalf. So 9% is, is very, very low. And this is the number of, uh, of people who believe that they would actually advocate. And on paper, that is the role of the HR leader. So that's the difficult part is on paper, your role is to protect and defend and encourage and support the people. But who is paying your bill? Who is your actual boss? You are working for an organization. So that that is the clear part. And I think that is this inherent problem with HR is that they have two masters. They have the one on paper, the nice one that that uh, that they're there to do. But then, who pays their salary? Whose um, uh, interests are they really serving? And that is uh, the organization. So, what happened to me was uh, many many years ago. Uh, it was my very first corporate job uh, in a giant company. It, it ended rather badly and very unexpectedly because I, I came in with this idea of you know HR is there to to serve you. Um, I was. Uh, given uh, uh, to a, a young manager. So I, I was serving under a, a young woman who had never had anyone uh, to manage before. Uh, she was quite a workaholic. Uh, she was somebody who had a very hard time letting go and delegating. And she was not somebody used to, she had not been trained. She doesn't understand how to onboard, how to communicate expectations, uh, how to have clear goals and boundaries. She was just kind of winging it. And this was also a result of her lack of development as a leader. There, she was kind of plunked into this leadership role because she was such a good employee that she was promoted to a job that required a totally different st skill set. And we see this all the time. Let, let me just interrupt you for a second before we get back to the story. I, I think you, you just touched on a very important point. And uh, I talked about that. I think it was in the last season of uh, this podcast, the, the cost of our obsession. We have this obsession with leadership where we take somebody who's really, really great at a certain level in the organization, great as an individual contributor, and, and then we promote them to a position where not only the... I mean, you as an employee did not enjoy working for her. 
Uh, and, and it wasn't she was a bad person. She just didn't know how to be a leader. I'm pretty sure that she probably didn't enjoy uh, having that position. And we have we have damage all around because we think that leadership is just, uh, you know, a promotion where it, it's just like giving you more money. But leadership is a job. Le- leadership yes. is something that, that you need to know how to do and not just, you know, get promoted without any. Uh... But anyway, I interrupted you. Please, please continue. No, Yoram, you're absolutely right. Not only is it an entirely separate skill set, it's it's an t- entirely different mindset. So you have to, first of all, want to do this. You have to be a- about people and about making people grow. Um, in this case, when you hire somebody and, and promote them to a leadership role, they're they're not doing the work anymore. They are there to support the people doing the work. And this is a huge shift. If you've been really, really good at doing your job and extremely efficient, then you have to take on somebody on board them, train them, make sure that they have what they need. They're going to be, they're going to slow you down because you're still hoping to execute on that level. And yet now you have to manage. So the management part is 50% of your job, let's say. And then, so, so she saw it very much as she was being slowed down. Uh, I was a pain, you know, (laughs) I I was not somebody that, you know, uh, immediately could read her mind and jump in and and do the stuff. Uh, And so I think she, I I don't, it's not clear whether she asked for this role or not. Um, But either way, it was not something that she was well-suited to to uh, carry out. So um, this be, this got to be kind of a negative cycle, uh, you know, desperately trying to please her, trying to understand what it is uh, she wanted. Um, and and this, this growing frustration on her part that I wasn't able to understand uh, what her needs were. And no, nothing, of course, on paper, no, no onboarding, no guided plan, etc. And um, at a certain point, it, it, I really began to feel that this was impacting my mental health because I was, I was, um, it, the, the, the communication was getting to be more difficult as, as her frustration level grew and, and I couldn't get through to her anymore. I, I couldn't talk to her. So I went to HR, which I thought was the right thing to do. And, uh, I consulted with colleagues, with friends, with peers, like, what should I do? I'm in this situation. I really want to solve it. And they said, well, that's what HR is for. So yeah, right. <laughs> Of course, that's what they're for, the natural thing. So, uh, And you were not working in HR at that time, right? At that time, I was not. At that time, I was in the marketing department. Yeah, so HR was um, a separate entity. Um, This gets complicated. I can tell you that story later, that when you work for HR and go to HR, then it's a very complex situation. Yes. Indeed, because then you really have Advocate indeed, yes. So um, I, I worked up the courage to sit down with my HR rep, whose job it is to be on my side and support me and 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 try to solve whatever problems there were. And I and I just spilled my guts. I explained the situation. I said, "Please help me. What can I do? I really want this to work. Uh, it's not working." And uh, she said, "You've done the right thing. Uh, this is absolutely protocol. You followed, you know, the steps." Um, this person does have a reputation, so you're not coming out of left field. We do understand this. We've heard this from others and don't worry, we'll take it from here. And when I heard those words, I just felt lighter and lifted It's like, oh, thank God. You know, why didn't I do this earlier? Right. Well, um, the, the next morning, um, I was asked to deliver in my badge and, uh, I was escorted to, um, my desk under supervision where I was asked to remove my <laughs> items and my little plants and whatever, and, um, taken to the, the front door, um, and, uh, asked to never come back. And I, I 
I still to this day, I really don't understand what happened here. Um, but this is basically, it was an enormous failure on, on many, many fronts. But this was HR that took matters in their own hands saw a weaker party and a stronger party and basically terminated the weaker party in defense of the stronger, not solving the problem. This person would have certainly the same problem going forward with, with anyone else that they would, that they would uh, uh, employ or maybe just decommissioned as a, as a boss and continued on her old trajectory. Uh, and so my learning lesson coming away from that was if you have a problem with somebody, keep your head down. If you're mistreated or bullied, don't say anything. And for God's sakes, don't go to HR. So that's, uh, <laughs> you, you know, an interesting thing is I read in one of the uh, SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management uh, Association, uh, in their blog, I read an interesting uh, perspective from from an HR person's per, uh, uh, point of view. And I mean, you're going to love the title of this article. It says, Why HR Doesn't Exist to help employees. Oof. And so again, it starts with the story. I'm two years into my career in HR. So this is someone who works for HR. My work experience included uh, or includes uh, managing people and training and development. I'm truly struggling and considering leaving my HR director role as I'm constantly being reprimanded for looking out for the best benefits of the employees. My manager yeah. feels that my role is to offer benefits, oversee recruitment and hiring, and keep us legally compliant in our processes. Is this typical uh, in most companies? Am I missing something? Should I go back to managing training and development? Fiona, what is the role of HR? Yeah, this is a great article. I read the same and it, it just broke my heart because people join HR because they want to help people. This is a mission. This is a purpose that they are drawn to. These are the kinds of people who are there to support others. And they join the department to carry on on this purpose. And they believe, and I still believe, that it's a very useful function um, of any organization to be an advocate for employees. And so when I read something like this, I, I, I've I've absolutely seen it in HR. I've I've seen people coming to HR all the time, and um, and uh, suffering uh, for their choice to come forward uh, because they're tagged, they're red list, they're they're sort of they're blacklisted after they do that as kind of a problem employee, and so they're you know they get passed over for promotions, they get asked to you know their contracts don't get renewed, any number of things, and yet. HR does broadcast within most large organizations that they're there for you. I, I do feel I, when I speak to HR professionals, um, their levels of stress are higher. I think something like 9% higher than other professionals in this time because we see this lack of engagement and um, uh, quitting. Every time we quit, uh, HR's workload and blood pressure goes up because they are asked to fill the seat. And one thing that occurred to me after some time at, at HR is that HR is very much like the body's kidney. They're the ones who, who clean out the mess and clean the bloodstream based on what other parts of the body have eaten or done that's unhealthy. So let's say you have toxic leadership, toxic management, HR pays the price because if you have high levels of turnover based on choices made by other parts of the leadership organization, HR is the one that has to clean the system, <laughs> um, train the people who are underperforming, coach them, um, onboard people, uh, offboard people, um, 
fire people, uh, you know, they're the ones that have this role to kind of do the cleanup. Um, if there's a huge mass of layoff or reorganization, HR, th- their workload is, is double for an entire year because they have to um, hire, fire, um, onboard, train, you know, on, on steroids. So this does explain, you know, why that job is so difficult. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because I think uh, it's kind of what you're saying here is the analogy to to a kidney is is funny because uh, that means that um, we can live with half of them. Oh, <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. I'm glad you didn't compare it to a liver. We can cut it them in half and they're going to grow by themselves. But, That's you know, here's yeah. an interesting point. You know, we're looking at the role of HR as, as helping the employees. I mean, it sounds like the right thing to do. It, it sounds like this was what that person who uh, was quoted in the uh, Sherm article uh, said, but... Uh, they do have responsibilities for the company. I mean, for shareholders to maintain compliance, we do have employees that, you know, the first thing, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story that where we had in, in one of the organizations that I was part of, we had an employee that actually committed a crime in the mm-hmm. workplace and was so smart that that crime was actually caught on camera. So it's not like we didn't have a camera. Uh, and then uh, that empl- we fired that employee, obviously. And then uh, the employee came back and sued the company that their uh, firing uh, was uh, based on uh, racial discrimination because of his race. And you have to wonder, so does HR actually have a responsibility and they need to be trusted not only by the employees, but by the managers too? Hmm. That's a really unfortunate story, actually, because it's it's playing a card that can't be beat. That's like the ace of spades when you play that diversity card. It's very, very hard to counter that from a position of power and say, no, you're wrong. So I, I, that's that's really unfortunate. It makes it really hard for so many other professionals who are doing their best and who are diverse. You know, so here here's a, a question. I mean, to me, one of the first things, whenever I want to help somebody become more trusted, the first question that I ask is, what relationship? You have to be very specific because the same thing that would make you trusted in one relationship could make you distrusted in another relationship. So what is that relationship that's important to you? And and I think it's pretty clear to say uh, that there is a dependency that employees have in HR professionals in their companies, in their organizations. So the dependency is there, uh, which means that the HR employees, the, the HR professionals need to be trusted by that organization, but by employees in the organization. Well, the first thing, if you want to be more trusted, is you need to know uh, if you are or are not trusted. And it, it doesn't matter necessarily what you think as it is, what, what is reality. So an HR professional, how do they know if they're trusted or not? What, what, what are the signals that they get to know that uh, we'll start with employees, that employees trust them or that employees don't trust them? How do they know? Oh, that's a good question. I think you don't really ever know because I think people aren't 
coming and telling you whether they do trust you. I think you, you, you said this in one of your podcasts that if you ask somebody, can I trust you? The answer is always yes. And the, and the, the truth is sometimes yes, sometimes no. So they won't know by asking. They would probably know by the, the amount of, of personal information that is shared with them at any given time. So if people are coming forward to you with issues that are personal in nature, then you know you are trusted. If if your job, if you put a sign out saying, come here, see me if you have, if you're being bullied, if you have issues, every company has bullying, every company has issues, uh, discrimination, unfair treatment, that's just baked in. But if nobody is coming to talk to you about it, then, and then no, let's say none of your females are being promoted, then you know that there, you do have some trust is issues there. Uh, but if people are freely coming to you, really disclosing a lot of details uh, and putting them their careers in your hands, then then you know that you have their trust. But uh, what if there are no issues in the company? I mean, you may be the HR professional. The company is just operating so well. Uh, everybody just gets along. All the leaders have leadership skills and not software programming skills. Everything is just good. They're not coming to you. How do you know that they're not coming to you uh, because things are good or that they're not coming to you because they don't trust you? Well, I think... First of all, I, I think no company is perfect. There's there are always going to be issues, and I think any company that strives for perfection will seek out whatever issues that are there and work on them and make them better. Um, and so, if nobody is coming to you at all because the company is perfect, mm, you know, just have to use your your human common sense on that one. Uh, but then look at the data: how many people are quitting? What is your quit rate? If your quit rate is above three or four percent per annum, then you know you're above the global average. So then you have a problem. If you have certain numbers of people who are being promoted within the company, if you have a glass door, you can see that on the data. How many females are being promoted? How many people of a diverse background uh, are being promoted to certain roles? What is your upper, upper level management look like? Are these only people that belong to a certain race, religion, identity, gender, or not? And that's how you'd identify whether your company is an equitable one or not. Uh, if you have people, what is your length of stay? Um, what is the experience of people who are onboarded? What are offboarding interviews like? Are they flagging? Because that, that's a wonderful interview, the offboarding, because people, they just say whatever is true. I mean, they, they really are free to freely express what the problem is with why they left or, or why they were terminated. And this is gold. So if you gather this kind of, and HR has access to all this data, that's part of what they get. That's their, their, you know, their playing ground. And if you are combing through this data and you're finding that the numbers do not paint a picture of an equitable workplace or one where everybody has equal chances. Uh, I worked at a company once where it would go, it was an international company, is operating globally. It was based in the Netherlands. And after a kind of a, a reorg, a very intense one, all senior management became white, male, and indigenous, meaning Dutch, even though it's an, uh, within, within, you know, overnight. So the top two tiers uh, suddenly became that way. So that's, you're, you're, you're showing by uh, data that, 
this is a company that prefers a certain type of person with a certain type of background and don't, don't, don't bother applying. <laughs> so if you examine all of the data that you have access to and you see that, Hey, you know, uh, the, the diversity numbers are looking good. Uh, people are not quitting at a certain rate. Uh, the exit interviews are, are normal. Let's say not pointing to any one thing, but person, you know, certain personality issues that you can't avoid. Um, then you're on the right track. And then people should be coming to you because it's a, an, an environment where people are trusting. And, you know, you, you mentioned the exit interviews, and that, that's an interesting point, because I think that in many cases, uh, employees, when, when they would leave, even if they leave because, you know, they don't trust their HR. I mean, obviously, if they don't trust their HR person and they're doing their exit interview with the HR person, uh, just like you said and, and I said before, uh, if if I don't trust you, I'm not going to tell you that I don't trust you because I don't trust how you're going to behave with that uh, answer. So mm -hmm. I'm going to say, no, everything is good. I'm really leaving because that's a better opportunity. Uh, I think one of the big things, and, and this, this is kind of what I'm hearing between your words, uh, that you, you don't stop there with the exit interview. You have to look around and, and see what are, are there any symptoms that are not directly reported to me as the HR professional. So, for example, take uh, people would write things on Indeed or in Glassdoor or things like that. Go check it. Check yes. it. And, and knowing that people are probably three times, let's just say, a lot more um, from to to write a negative review if they had a negative experience and a positive review uh, than if they have a positive experience. So, you know, we're going to get a lot of negatives there, but still read them and see, the, is there any basis? And obviously, there are always going to be people who just, you know, say uh, negative things because, I don't know what, they're just disgruntled. Uh, you're always going to have a high turner of a rate. Uh, one of the companies that I, I spoke with, the CEO, he complained about a very high turnover rate. And I went and I visited his company. And I'm telling you, Fiona, I have never seen a culture that good or what he built in this company. I mean, all around, all the, the things. But you know what? After kind of digging deeper into why employees were leaving, and I'm told, so, so that you know, I'm talking about a turnover rate that every employee would leave on average in 18 months, mm. which is a very high turnover rate. You, you know, I, I found that the reason was, and it's going to sound weird, but it was a very, very boring job. Mm -hmm. The job yep. itself was boring. There was, and, and, you know, the more we talked about that, there was like no way to make it. And, and I'm not going to go into the details, but there was mm -hmm. no way to make this job boring. So, you know, there's always the probability that high turnover is a symptom of something else. But I, I think what I'm hearing you say, and, and I agree with that, is uh, we can't rely on the exit interviews. We have to look beyond that. We have to look at symptoms. And I think you, you said something else when you talked about the Dutch company that had uh, all male, Dutch, uh, white. Well, most Dutch are white. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> The um, in their executive team that, you know, maybe you're doing something wrong. And even if you don't see the outcome, you don't see the symptoms, the symptoms are there. You just don't see them, which kind of goes back into uh, as an HR manager. If you're not competent, if you don't show empathy to your employees, th those are all components of, of my trust model. 
Uh, you may not see the, the outcome. You may not see that the employees don't trust you, but you're doing the things that would cause them not to trust you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if, if, I'd love to go back to that point where you said that people are are quitting because the job is boring. Um, you know, the, the, that is an interesting pattern. Uh, and that it, you can imagine it's really hard to do something about that. But a leader has the opportunity to gamify any boring environment. You have call yeah. centers where people quit and you have call centers where people stay. You have, can I get you a burger places with fries with that, uh, where people stay because they love the team. They love the camaraderie. They love the environment. It's fun. It's funny. And the people, the, the places just like that same kind of job where people leave and the manager has an enormous amount of power to create an environment where people stay, even if the job is boring. Um, gamification is a great way to, make any job more fun. And if you have a certain demographic, like a young population or something, uh, this can be really, really effective. So again, if I'm going with, I believe that HR professionals are positioned in the ideal position, and we'll talk about that. That's going to be my next question. Mm -hmm. uh, positioned to build trust in the organization. But first, you can't build trust if you're not trusted yourself. What can they do to yeah. be more trusted? What 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 are the points? And, and remember, you are, and, and I think in one of our communications, you said something to me, they're between a rock and a hard place. They do need to protect the company. They do need to meet the company's requirements. They do need to uh, assure compliance and so on. They have this responsibility. But on the other hand, they, they do need to be trusted by the employees. Yeah. What can they do to balance these two? Yes. Well, I think it's in the name, HR, human resources. It's by, it's a binary thing. And one is somewhat mutually exclusive. So you, the H part is the human part. And the R part is the resource part. And we look at resources, the leadership in many ways, looks at resources the same way we see our natural resources. You know, we drill, we we capture, we exploit, and we cap a, you know, this is a, a Texan metaphor, if I may. Uh, and, and we're used to looking at resources like that. That's the definition of a, of a resource. We're not drilling for sustainability here. We're exploiting as much as we can. And when people are finished, we we cap the well and drill, drill on. This is a very unsustainable way of looking at the human part because people, A, they don't go away. They're always with you writing reviews on Glassdoor and and working for your competition and quitting. So you 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 want to keep these people as a returning resource that you don't want people to leave because first of all, it costs an enormous amount of money uh, to replace people. And second, because they are going to take your knowledge and use it for your competition or for your suppliers or, or, or whatever, it's not going to be in the best interest of the company. I think to answer your question, what a passionate, let's say CHRO or, or um, HRD would make the case to the highest levels of the organization, that confidentiality in the building of trust and being an advocate for the employees is actually good for the bottom line of the company. The higher the levels of trust, the lower the turnover. Every time you turn over a job, it costs, I think, something like six to nine months of a person's salary to replace somebody. And there are a lot of costs that are uh, not... Um, uh, even seen. There are a lot of invisible costs. So it's something like 550 billion in lost productivity, according to Gallup, when you have uh, a, this high turnover rate. And if they can have certain policy procedures baked in 
uh, to their charter, such as confidentiality for anything that they have their own KPIs because every HR professional has their own targets, their own numbers that they have to hit their own KPIs. If one of those KPIs could be raising of trust and lowering attrition, lowering churn, what we call turnover rate. And that's part of what is measured for your success as an HR person, then that will benefit the larger company. It's not sexy because being a hunter-gatherer HR person, getting new people in, getting new recruiting in is, you know, I, I filled 59 vacancies this year. Look at that. But actually, the, the it's much more costly to run that way. Uh, and, and we see this with, with customers as well as, uh, as, as employees. It's very sexy to get new clients, but, and it's less sexy to keep the old ones happy. It's not fun to keep your old employees upskilled and trained and engaged and inspired to stay, but it's a whole lot more cost effective. Yeah. And, you know, you, you said confidentiality brought a scenario to my head. Let's let's talk about this scenario and see what what we think needs to be done or what what would a trusted HR professional do? And, you know, it happens all the time. I mean, we just heard of some major layoffs in some of the major companies. I remember one day uh, working for a very large company. I'm not going to mention a name. And I remember that they had just announced, you know, the quarterly results were not going to be great. And, and before they announced, I should say before they announced, we knew there were rumors about a layoff. I mean, the rumors were that specific that we were talking about more than a thousand employees, more than a thousand employees were going to be laid off. They just didn't say who, what departments, what uh, it, it's again, it's a large organization. But, you know, when you hear that it's more than a thousand, I mean, this could be you. And um, so you're the HR manager. And sure, in a company like that, there there is a hierarchy. There are HR managers that are in the loop, those that are not in the loop. Hypothetically, you're the HR manager. You know about the layoff. Um, not sure if you know who the people are, but maybe you do. And an employee comes to you and says, there are rumors about a layoff. You know those rumors are true. And they ask you point blank, is it true? What do you do? I mean, now you need to balance. Uh, the, you have an employee that's really stressed. Uh, and um, on the other hand, you have the confidentiality that you need to maintain to the company. What do you do? What, what should an HR, a good trusted HR manager do? Yeah. Usually HR does know a, a good amount of time before the rest of the organization. Usually not every member of the HR team, but higher levels will certainly know that these things are coming because they have to plan. They have to have a roadmap right. in advance of, of how right. you do these rolling layoffs. And, and it's, it's a very ugly part of the job, you know, doing this. Um, the HR manager would not say that there's a layoff coming. The HR manager or anybody who knows that there's a layoff coming, they can't reveal it because, first of all, you, you can't panic and create a stampede, right? Um, and then there goes their productivity for the year because once you know that there's a layoff coming and people are jockeying for, oh, who's it going to be? And they're going to start um, 
you know, undermining each other. So they're the ones who stay, they're going to start information hiding. You, you have an instant toxic environment when people know right. that there's a layoff coming. That's actually the most dangerous part when you know that there's a layoff, but you don't have the names. Once you have the names, you know, it's just awful. <laughs> but if you don't have any names, then you enter into this morass where you're trying to, you know, step on your colleagues. So you're the one who's chosen above them. It's very, very ugly stuff. So the, if an HR person were to reveal that, that there's a layoff coming, that would probably be the end of that person. They would probably be the first one on that layoff, uh, roster. So they, they, they can't do that. I mean, they can't do that also for obvious reasons, um, that to protect the people there, it could also, they could also unwind the policy. So what happens if you say, oh yes, there's a layoff coming and then management has second thoughts and they unwind it and then it's not coming. So now you've panicked everybody, you know, so you would not, almost hundred percent, you would not reveal it unless you're sitting on the cocktail and the person's a friend and it accidentally slips out. I mean, that happens, of course. The more Probably the tell. fourth or fifth cocktail. <laughs> the first <laughs> the one is not revealing a layoff of a thousand people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this happens at every organization, even the secret service, they reveal stuff after a certain number of drinks. Um, Oh, you just gave me an idea who who I should interview next. Next time we have a secret (laughs) service agent. Right. So the more people who know, the more people who know. And and you're just doubling the chance of these things coming up. But but the HR person would not reveal. But but um I'm I'm going to make that that scenario very very specific and mm-hmm. and very pointed. Uh you are right now the HR person and I am the employee that comes to you and says Fiona, I heard there is a layoff coming and there the rumors about a layoff. Is there or isn't there? And I'm looking at you with my big eyes. <laughs> What do you do? I would say that I have no way of talking about anything right now. So, oh, so I, you're confirming it. So am, there is a layoff because uh, otherwise you would have oh, said, Oh, I no. see we're role playing. No, I, I, I didn't, I didn't realize I would just, I would probably, say, I would probably say, and the big eyes, I mean, the glasses make them bigger. So you have a, an advantage there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this happens a lot. This happens a lot because documents yeah. get leaked and people know that it's there. They would, they would just not say. They would say, "No, it's not they. It's you." There's nothing. I would. I would also not say. I would also not say because. So what, uh, but what do you say? I mean, you can't just not say anything. I mean, you're saying something, and and so you're saying I can't talk about it. I would say that change is an inevitable part of the business. That oh, every so year we layoff. restructure. Every year, basically, there's a restructuring. They can be a very small one or it can be a large one. Okay, so, so don't tell right me now management care. is trying to decide whether it's a small, large or minimal restructuring, but you can count on there always being a restructuring every single year. That's just like the, the natural inhale, exhale of every large corporation. And then that's how I would get out of it. I would just say changes a fact always. Right now we're discussing, not we, cause it's, you know, the, the big guys uh, uh, upstairs. Right now the big guys are discussing what to do no decisions have been made. It's possible that there is a restructuring coming based on these facts that we all know to be true. You know, our clients have dropped, our products are terrible, or there's a massive recall or whatever it is. Um, and there's just no clear answer. 
And honestly, until these things are debated at the highest levels right up until the time they are released. So it's not lying when you say there's not a decision yet to report. And, you know, but, you know, if, if we're going to lay off a thousand people, then, you know, maybe there was no decision on a hundred of them, on 200 of them. But there's probably seven, eight hundred that we know by name. And one of those people standing in front of you and, and saying, OK, I understand. I understand you can talk about that. Just, just give me a hint. Should I be looking for another job? I would say no. I would say no. do your job yeah. for the very, very best that you can do. No matter what happens, know that the more you can improve yourself, the better you will weather this whatever change coming up. If you happen to find yourself on the inside, you're going to be worked even harder than before. It's not necessarily a good thing to survive a layoff because your yeah. workload goes, woo, and the culture is toxic after yeah. a reorganization. It's not a fun place to work for at least a year or so. People are, are getting to know their new teams. Everything is kind of, you just throw the Lego up in the, in the air and watch how it comes down. So either way, th that, that's why a lot of people quit after a layoff. If they survive a layoff and they see that it's, it's become a shark tank, they quit. So you, when you do your layoffs, you plan for maybe 80, 90% of the people that you actually want to leave because you're going to have so much extra attrition after a layoff. So I would tell that employee to just make sure that they are the very, very most resilient, most skilled, take advantage of all trainings, upskill yourself, get yourself in a position where you are indispensable. If you can't be in that position, make sure that you gather whatever you can to make yourself indispensable somewhere else. So I probably wouldn't know who that person is. I mean, unless I'm really, I mean, th those names, they are not released uh, to the, the, the normal, you know. It, it depends file. on the size of the company too. I mean, mm -hmm. we can have a pretty small HR department and they, they know, and, and I was assuming you do. But, you know, th this brings an interesting point, and that is uh, when this, when the rumors are coming out, this is not the time to start building trust. I think mm -hmm. you are building on the fact that, you build trust over a long period of time. If right. you're a trusted HR manager, if I as an employee trust you as the HR manager, if I trust the company, um, the, the thing that I need to trust you with is that you will take care of me. That if this is happening, you're not going to all of a sudden turn stone cold and say, well, you're off, uh, good luck, uh, not going to hear from you anymore. But I will yes. know that you really do represented my interest to the last minute and that, uh, you know, in many cases, uh, when I when I saw a trusted HR manager, they would already make phone calls and so on. And uh, I remember there was a scene in uh, the West Wing where there was a probability of the president not winning the second election. The West Wing is my most favorite TV show. And... Uh, Somebody reached out to uh, some of the senior staff uh, in the chief of staff's group and uh, with job offers. And that senior staff member came to the chief of staff and said, is there something that I need to know? I mean, why am I starting to get offers? Are you preparing a uh, safety net for me? And that was what he did. He was preparing safety net for them. So mm -hmm. I think it's... We, 
asking the question, do I trust the HR manager at that point? Uh, that's going to rely on what has the HR manager done for me up until that point that would make me trust them that they have my back and that, you know, there, there is no such thing. I don't need to worry about the, the reduction in force. But I would know, one, that the company has done everything in their power to not eliminate my job and that they do appreciate me. So I trust the company that the HR manager did the best she could to take care of me if I am a person on that list. That takes time to build, but that gets me to that point with a lot less anxiety. And I know that if it happens, it happens. You know, a lot of things can happen, uh, but not that one. Does, does that sound reasonable? Absolutely. And this is also a matter of optics. So the more you do this, that's a, I had not thought of that, but that's a great point. Um, that the more you do this, that you provide this soft landing and you do it in a way that is visible. So you're showing somebody that you are really working to get them landed somewhere good. You, you, you get out your contact list. You really make an effort on their behalf. You make sure that they have a soft landing. This radiates outwards. So people see that. People hear about that. And that kind of secondhand information that you radiate outwards is going to do much more than what you say one-on-one -on -one to the person behind closed doors. You just, you, you, you show, you show that it's going to happen. And, um, and also that I'd add to that, that the transparency around a massive reorg is helpful. There was yeah. a company, I think it was Volkswagen. Some when years you ago. can. Mm -hmm. Yes. You well, can. but you, you usually can, like if you have the challenge, basically you have a problem which is we need to cut costs, right? So this is the challenge. It's not like we're going to fire people, but we have to cut costs by this amount. Right. How are we going to do this? Are we going to do it by firing people or are we going to do it in other ways? And if you present this challenge to your workforce in, in an early stage and you say, all right, guys, we are looking for ways to not fire people, please add your ideas. What do we do? And one of the ideas that, were, that came up in a German company many years ago was one of the first ones, it was really groundbreaking, where they did this. They asked this of their working population. We say, this is what's coming. We have to cut costs in order to stay afloat. What do we do? This is everybody's, this is a big brainstorming moment when everybody has to give their ideas and we're going to think about it. And one of the ideas that they came up with was, okay, we're all going to work four day weeks. And we're all going to cut our own salaries down by a certain percentage, including the CEO, including, you know, highest level management, the shareholders as well. The shareholders are going to forgo their income for a couple of years. And we're all going to step back and, and work less so that we can all work and keep our jobs. And that was incredibly successful. They managed to cut all their costs because they had that same number of FTEs, that same number of hours was reduced, but they had the same number of bodies. And what happens when you do that? Here's what happens. People work full-time anyway, because they're yeah. engaged, they're inspired, they feel like they belong somewhere and they will put in that time. So they had it all. They, they had their cake all because they were super, super transparent about this need to cut costs in advance and they put it to the body. You, you know, you were saying that and I was thinking there's another component of, of my trust model that I haven't thought about. And that's the uh, 
component of symmetry. And symmetry is really you trust people who are with you on the same side of the wall. Uh, and when the company, through the HR manager, manager through the managers uh, or anybody else, when the company says this problem that we have, this financial problem that we have is not our problem and we're going to fix it by laying you off. It is all of our problem. You're yep. part of it. Well, you're, you're part of the problem. Probably not use the, those words, but uh, be part of the solution. Help uh, take, take your part in it. And, you know, I think that if employees need to go, this might end up to certain employees saying, you know what, it doesn't matter how I turn this around, my position has to go and, and I, it doesn't even come from management. So you're making them part of it. You're putting them on the same side of the wall. You don't put the employees. I never thought about it that way. I, I have that component mm -hmm. in the model. Never thought about it that you put them on the other side. Let well, me, it's like we'll, looking at the company as a, as a, as a body. So yeah. We're all within the same body. We're all fighting off uh, an illness together, right? Or, or some disease or something together. And we're all part of this. And we're going to come out of it alive. And some of us will have to go. We might lose a kidney. <laughs> uh, we might lose a limb. But we as a body will continue with as much of us as we can. And beware of language. Like when, when I... Um, when I see the way a lot of these things are presented, when I see, you know, mission statements and so on, I see a lot about how we're a family. We're a family. You know, this is the HR family. This is our, you know, we, you don't fire your family. I mean, we, I have a, I have an underperforming teenage son. Do I fire him? You know, no, we're a family. Yes. We don't fire our family. So, so don't use the language, uh, like familial language, unless you are prepared to never fire anybody and be perpetually upskilling. Like if my son, he's underperforming or my daughter, I wouldn't fire them. <laughs> I would upskill them. I would make sure that I ultra invest in them. And this is a very, this is optics too. So if you show that you are honing in on those underperformers and you are focusing on them as on a laser beam and say, here's what's going to happen. We are going to invest a lot of money and time in you. You're going to be better next year than you are this year. You're going to keep your job and you're going to be much, much better and more you know, you're underperforming now, you need to know that. And we're going to invest in you and we're going to see you work your tail off and, and rise to that level so that you are, are with the team. People see that and yeah. they, uh, uh, they notice that, huh, okay, this is a company that really does want to uh, manage its weakest link. Yeah. And, you know, you, you brought up an interesting point. Companies put things on their mission statement that are, I'm sorry, they're just total BS. Yeah. It's like, I'm saying what you want to hear, but that's not really what I feel. Right. Uh, whether it's uh, we put the customer first and then you get to deal with their customer service and you go there. Where's this line that says we put our customer first and those who say our company, our employees, our family, but they don't really treat them that way. So right. we're saying that because it sounds good, but yeah. we don't really mean it. And, and I think that this is where you walk the talk. Let me finish with one question. We're really getting into a long episode this time. Uh, <laughs> Let me, and, and I may have to break it into two parts, but uh, let me ask you this. I, uh, at some point, I began re-believing that the person who is in the right position, the ideal position to help build trust in the organization, obviously assuming that they are trusted, is the HR manager. I think personally, I think that the HR manager is a person-oriented 
person, a professional. It's, you know, as opposed to a programmer or, or I, I don't know, a, a mechanical engineer. So you got someone who got training, who's, who's prone, who's, who's focus is on people. So I think, and, and they're already in and they already know people assuming that they are trusted. Do you agree that the HR professional is in an ideal position to build trust within the organization or should we bring people from the outside? Yes and yes. I think it's always good to have people from the outside that come and, and advise. I think that the HR professional is absolutely the right person to ring the bell and to remind senior men, they don't always have the power. They're always executing on company policy. And if they work in a toxic working environment, they will by definition execute on toxicity that you can't avoid that. But they are the one to gently speak truth to power and remind uh, senior leadership that it, the, these resources that they're tapping are human resources. It's not the same as paper clips and, and, and pencils, but that, that there's something unique about the human resource that needs to be sustained in a very different kind of way than, let's say, you know, pulling coal out of the ground or something like this. It's, it's a very different kind of skill set. And, always pushing back gently to policy decisions, reminding people of this is going to impact the people. And this is and, and, and game out every policy and say, when you do this, if you take this decision, it's going to have these cost implications, because a lot of times senior leadership really responds to cost implications. So the, the HRD would be the one to say, hey, um, when if we were to go this route, be aware that this will cause a waterfall of consequences that have direct and indirect cost implications, as well as a degradation of culture. And this is a very difficult, fuzzy thing. You can't really measure what does it mean to have a degradation of culture, but it's something that really impacts the bottom line. And that is where the HR, the CHRO, let's say, would be able to sit on the shoulder of, of the CEO and tap them every time they're making a decision that will by definition, impact the employees. Like, you know, I know you're going to make this decision, but before you do, you need to have the wealth of all my experience so you can be informed and make this informed decision. That is their role. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there was one more thought that came to mind kind of to close the loop on the articles that I read at the beginning with the, that were uh, many studies, not just one source, many studies show that there is a low level of trust in the HR department. And there are many reasons to that. And, and what's important to know is if I touch on my eighth law of trust, which is the trust that I have in you uh, is, and, and let's say you, the HR professional, is the product of my trustfulness, my willingness to trust. And it's not just people in general, it's HR professionals and your trustworthiness as a specific HR professional. And we have to always keep in mind, HR professionals, uh, I would say you have to keep in mind, I'm not an HR professional, uh, that... What you do and how you affect the trust that one employee has in you slightly affects the trust they have in the HR function and in the HR profession in general. Fiona, it was yeah. great to have you here. I, I, You made me think of things I didn't think about before. I, I'm sure that we're going to have uh, a few of those every now and then. Uh, tell my audience uh, where they can find you. Thank you, Yoram. I really enjoyed this. You you definitely uh, asked some very, very interesting questions. So uh, my work, uh, the comic books, uh, I have a blog and a podcast uh, of my own uh, and some YouTube channels. Um, that is all found on a postcovidhandbook.com. 
So I deal with the post-COVID working landscape. So that's why it's postcovidhandbook.com. Postcovidhandbook.com. Fiona, thanks again for having you, for being here. It was great having you. Thank you so much. Thank you a lot. Really enjoyed the time. And there you have it. A conversation, not an interview, with someone who knows something about the topic and who really cares about it. Let me know if this format is something that you see value in, and I will add more conversation like this in the future. Most of the episodes will continue to be uh, solo episodes uh, where I'll share my position on different things. But every now and then, I'm planning on doing an episode like this. And until then, may trust be with you. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.